Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon discusses what to do about spinal tumors. So there's really two broad categories. There's uh, spinal cord tumors that really grow from the spinal cord tissue itself or around it and within the nerves. And then there's another type that are called spinal column tumors. And those essentially grow within the bones of the spine. An athlete who lost his leg to cancer in high school shares the inspiring story of how and why he remains active. You know, I, I think a lot of people cut themselves short. I think if other people were in my shoes, they, you know, especially at 15, they would continue on and do the things that they love to do. And we'll hear about the role of child life specialists in the hospital. So the basis of our job is understanding child development and how that is affected by being in the hospital or the healthcare system. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll meet a Central New Yorker who lost his leg to cancer in high school and has gone on to accomplish several athletic endeavors. Then, we'll learn about the role of the child life specialist in the hospital. But first, a neurosurgeon talks about the management of tumors of the spinal cord and the spinal column. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What would you want to know if you found out you had a tumor growing in your spine? Dr. Michael Galgano, an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Upstate, is here to answer questions about the diagnosis and treatment of spinal tumors. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Amber. So how do most people find out that they have a spinal tumor? Are there symptoms? Yeah, I, I would say the most common reason uh, that brings people to the doctors is pain in general, and that would also go for spinal tumors as well. So whether you have a tumor in the neck, the thoracic spine, or the low back, or the sacrum, which is by the pelvis, the, the most common presenting symptom typically is pain. Um, after pain, I would say the next most common symptom is some type of a neurological problem, whether they're having arm weakness, arm numbness, maybe problems with bowel or bladder incontinence, or issues walking. So those are really kind of the, the red flag symptoms that somebody may have if they have a spinal tumor. So I know a lot, back pain is common. A lot of people have back pain. So how do you differentiate between a back pain that could be a tumor and a back pain sure. that happened because you strained yourself. So sure, that's a great question. So so the most common reason that somebody would have back pain from a tumor really, the way to differentiate two types of pain um, essentially is that someone with a spinal tumor may have pain at, at rest. Okay, so that's something important to keep in mind. So if you're sleeping and it wakes you up from night and you're having a lot of discomfort in the back or the neck, that may be a red flag because that's not usual for what we call mechanical pain from a strain or something like that. Okay. Uh, once a patient makes it to your office, how do you go about diagnosing it? I'm sure you ask questions about pain, but sure. what else do you do? So typically, by the time someone makes it to my office, if, if they've come to see a neurosurgeon, they've probably already had proper workup and imaging by that time, and they've already had uh, some type of an MRI, CAT scan, x-ray that's going to reveal that they have already had an abnormality within their spine. So by the time they get to me, um, there's already been a diagnosis of a spinal lesion, but then it's up to me to try to figure out exactly what type it is. And how do you do that? So we would get MRI scans. That would really be the hallmark, uh, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, so that looks at the soft tissue, looks at the nerves, looks at the spinal cord. And then we also typically would get a CAT scan that looks at the bones very well to see if there's any uh, abnormalities with the spinal column. Now, if you're able to say, now, does lesion and tumor, is that the same thing? It, they're synonymous. Okay. Correct. So, um, but tumors can be cancerous or not cancerous. Yes. Um, and I'm assuming that the cancerous kind are, are worse. But So how do you tell which is which? So the best way really is to get a biopsy. Um, and it's not always practical. So some patients uh, have a tumor that's within the spinal cord tissue itself. And it's not always uh, practical to get a biopsy of that uh, because that would entail actually opening up the outer membrane of the spinal cord. Uh, if there's a tumor that's within the bones of the spinal cord, that's a completely different animal. And then we could have our interventional radiology colleagues sometimes do what's called a CT-guided core needle biopsy, and then they could give us a tissue sample of that. So before we actually go in to operate on the patient, we know exactly what we're dealing with, whether it's benign, malignant, how fast it's moving, things of that sort. 
Because that would totally change what you're planning to do, right? It, it absolutely does. Absolutely does. If tumor is moving a bit faster, we may want to be a bit more aggressive up front. If it's a very slow-growing, indolent tumor, we may be able to actually just watch it over time. So it sounds to me like, I mean, the area that you work in, it sounds like these are pretty emergent um, issues if someone has a tumor. Sure. Problem, so right? Some of them certainly can be. Um, just the other day, I operated on someone who knew that they had a spinal tumor in their pelvis. Uh, for close to a decade. So some of them are very slow growing and they take a long time to really present symptoms depending on the cavity in which they're growing. Uh, then there's other ones who may come in with a very fast growing metastatic tumor, let's say from lung cancer or breast cancer, and they rapidly decompensate as far as the neurological function. Those patients may require a very urgent operation, otherwise their spinal cord function uh, can diminish permanently. So there's different types of tumors. You, you mentioned some grow in, in the spinal cord itself and some grow in the bone, the, ver the Correct. vertebrae? or Correct, yes. Yeah. So, so there's really two broad categories. There's uh, spinal cord tumors that really grow from the spinal cord tissue itself or around it and within the nerves. And then there's another type that are called spinal column tumors. And those essentially grow within the bones of the spine. And then to differentiate even further, you could have primary tumors that originate from the spinal cord or the bones itself or metastatic that originate from another organ in the body and then eventually will spread to the spinal column or the spinal cord. So uh, do you treat those differently, those that originate in the spine versus those that travel there from somewhere else in the body? Yeah, that's a great question. So if there's, a, if there's a, what's called a primary bone tumor, uh, those typically are treated very differently than a metastatic tumor. So if, if it's a metastatic tumor, presumably the cancer, unfortunately, has spread through the bloodstream at that point. And taking the tumor out uh, would really only entail um, cutting into the tumor itself. If it's a primary bone tumor that originates from the spinal column itself, that requires a much bigger operation to actually not get into the tumor so as to not spill the contents of the tumor uh, around to other tissues since that's really the only site uh, of, of the tumor itself. And these uh, tumors, can they can occur anywhere along the spine? Anywhere. So they could basically occur from, uh, from the base of the skull all the way down to the sacrum and the pelvis. And that's essentially what we uh, entail as the, as the spinal column. All right. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with neurosurgeon Dr. Michael Galgano from Upstate Medical University about spinal tumors. So let me ask you, what, what is known about the causes of tumors that appear in the spine? Uh, so I would say the most common reason that I see in my practice is uh, metastasis. So unfortunately, lung cancer is very common. Uh, breast cancer is very common. Prostate cancer is very common. Those are really the three most common cancers that I see. So that would uh, absolutely by and large be the number one reason uh, that's the cause of, of spinal cancer, if you will. So it started elsewhere and it spread. Yes, correct. Okay. And, and that's for spinal column tumors. For spinal cord tumors, it's, a it's actually the exact opposite. Uh, so it's very rare that we see a metastasis coming from elsewhere in the body that will migrate and settle within the spinal cord. Most of those are caused from some type of a genetic mutation uh, that may occur as the patient ages. Um, and then typically those arise within the spinal cord tissue itself. But those are much less common than a metastatic bone tumor. Are they related at all to, I mean, the brain is part of the neurologic system, like the spinal cord, right? Are they yes, related? Correct. Brain tumors and spinal tumors? So it, it's pretty uncommon. Uh, there's some patients who have a genetic mutation called neurofibromatosis or schwannomatosis, and they may develop multiple nerve tumors uh, within the brain and spinal cord and elsewhere around the nerves of their body, even uh, cutaneous nerves on the skin. Uh, so that would be the one, uh, probably the most common reason that we would see brain and spinal cord tumors together. Um, but typically, it's pretty rare to see, uh, you know, a related brain and spinal cord tumor. On rare occasion, we will see a, a, in a pediatric patient a tumor that originates in the brain, and it will actually metastasize via the spinal fluid pathways and then settle uh, within the low parts of the spinal cord. That's called a drop metastasis, uh, but those are exceptionally uncommon. Okay. Now, are you able to accurately predict how fast a tumor will grow once it's discovered? Uh, again, typically based on the pathology. So I would say pathology is the number one predictor of uh, prognosis for patients. So once we're able to get a tissue sample, whether it's intraoperatively or via a biopsy prior to us operating, uh, that gives us uh, the best prediction as to how fast a tumor grows and how aggressive that type of a cancer is. Do all tumors need to be removed? No, absolutely not. Uh, so there's many indolent benign tumors that are out there um, that may settle and a 
compartments of the spine do not that do not actually compress an important nerve or compress the spinal cord and they may just sit there and grow very slowly over several years if that's the case many of these can just be watched uh, expectantly um, there's other types of tumors that are actually very amenable to radiation uh, chemotherapy and if we have an accurate biopsy and it is one of those types of pathology such as a lymphoma those are actually not surgical diseases that would better be treated with radiation and or chemotherapy Okay, that's good to know. Um, now, what is surgery like to remove a spinal tumor? So again, to differentiate between the two types, they're, they're, they're very different types of operations. So if there's a spinal cord tumor, uh, those are um, very delicate operations because uh, essentially the first step is to identify the proper level that we're at with an X-ray and a special tube that we put on one of the bones of the spine. After we do that, we remove a window of bone and then we identify the tumor with an ultrasound. At that point, we have to open up the outer membrane of the spinal cord, and sometimes we actually have to go into the spinal cord tissue itself. So that, that's a very delicate, uh, stressful type of an operation. Um, and that's um, in, in contradistinction to a, a, a bone tumor of the spine, which typically would entail uh, placing multiple pins and rods above and below where the tumor is, because sometimes the tumor can actually destabilize uh, the biomechanical elements of the spine. And if that happens, that becomes a uh, much more uh, gross type of an operation, if you will, where there's a lot more gross movements as opposed to very fine, delicate movements to, to remove the tumor. When you talk about cutting into the spinal cord, um, I just think about paralysis because you hear that if someone has a spinal cord injury that there could be paralysis. Is that one of the risks? Absolutely. It's always a risk. Uh, I would say more so with a spinal cord tumor than with a spinal bone tumor. Uh, so what we do to kind of get around that, if you will, is we do the operation with a modality called neuromonitoring. So we have a special physiology technician that hooks up the patient to multiple electrodes and they can actually give us real-time uh, spinal cord integrity functioning uh, data feedback during the operation if we're getting into a spinal cord tract that maybe we shouldn't. And the way that we, we get around it surgically is to try to map out uh, to get into a tissue plane of the spinal cord that does not harbor a uh, very important tract, let's say to motor or sensory or something of that sort. So we try to stay out of the important areas of the spinal cord and find a corridor that's relatively innocuous to go through. Easier said than done, though. So a very tense, very delicate, very lengthy operation? Uh, absolutely. Some of them could be a, a, as quick as two to three hours, and I've had other ones that are uh, as far as 10 to 12, 14 hours sometimes. Wow. So it all depends on uh, tissue planes, how well the uh, the tumor is adhered to the spinal cord or the bones of the spine itself. If there's a very nice plane, sometimes it's very easy to take the tumor out. If the tumor is very adherent, uh, sometimes that could be a significant challenge. So how do you advise patients beforehand who are kind of deciding whether to go through with the surgery or not? I mean, how do you help them make a decision? So, so sometimes the decision, uh, if you will, is really made already. I suppose if the patient comes in and they're exceptionally symptomatic and, uh, you know, yesterday they were walking, talking, and they were normal, and today all of a sudden they're rapidly losing bowel and bladder function or lower extremity function, um, there's, there's not much of a discussion that has to take place. It's really, if we don't do the surgery, there's a very good chance that you may become permanently compromised neurologically. And if we do do the operation, there's a very good chance that we could save the neurologic function. So in those cases, um, it's very easy for the patient to make a decision. The, I would say the, the harder decisions are when there's kind of a slow growing tumor that's been there for a long time. And the patient understands if, that if they don't do something, it may continue to grow and cause problems over time. Uh, th that's a tougher conversation to have because it's not really an urgent issue. Um, so at that stage, it's really up to the patient when they want to pull the trigger to have uh, the tumor taken out. How long they want to live with whatever's happening to them because exactly. of it. Exactly. Okay. Um, but all of these surgeries, they're, they're certainly not risk-free. All of them harbor uh, significant risks. Um, and, and, you know, I really try to manage the patient's expectations beforehand that there are times um, that a patient will have to expect to wake up from surgery, potentially with a neurological deficit, uh, so that we could get a better oncological cure of their cancer. All right. Well, what do you say in terms of um, sort of after the surgery and recovery? What is recovery typically like? Uh, so recovery varies greatly on the patient. I would say the number one predictor how a patient does postoperatively is how they come into the hospital preoperatively. So if a patient presents to the ER with paralysis from a, a very aggressive spinal tumor, um, they're going to have a much more lengthy postoperative re rehabilitative course because they've already had a significant deficit that they have to try to regain afterwards. If a patient comes into surgery with very good neurological function uh, and there's no complications, 
um, I would say that they're going to have a, a very rapid uh, recovery afterwards. Uh, but it does vary greatly based on whether this is a spinal cord tumor, metastatic bone tumor. And, uh, you know, medical comorbidities obviously come into sure. play as well. So if someone has metastatic cancer, you know, they, they may have a lot of other medical issues that are, they're kind of up against. So it's not just a spinal tumor they're fighting after surgery. It's really their diabetes or hypertension, their heart disease, things of that sort. So that could really play a significant role in post-op recovery from spinal tumor surgery. And they may be in the hospital for a few days. Or? Yeah, I've had some patients stay in the hospital for two or three days after spinal uh, tumor surgery. I've had others stay in the hospital for several weeks and end up needing rehab uh, potentially for a few months, depending on uh, any deficit that they have neurologically. And then uh, the tumors, depending on the tumor, are, are they likely to grow back? Uh, so the metastatic tumors, uh, there is a higher propensity for those to want to grow, not necessarily in the same location where we took them out, but elsewhere in the spine. Because again, once a tumor has become metastatic, that means that the cancer, unfortunately, has migrated to the bloodstream. So those certainly can grow back over time. Um, primary bone tumors, if we're able to take them out in one piece, uh, there's a very low chance that those will actually come back. And this is also where chemotherapy and radiation come into play. A lot of patients, whether it's a spinal cord tumor or a spinal bone tumor, will end up needing what's called adjuvant therapy afterwards, chemo and radiation. That will actually help to keep uh, the tumor from growing back. Wow. Well, this has been very educational. I appreciate you Thank being you. here. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, Dr. Michael Galgano. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next, Dan Kosick tells how he thrives after surviving cancer in high school. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. He's an obstacle course endurance athlete. He's a lacrosse coach. He was a Paralympic ski racer. And at 15, he had to have his leg removed after a cancerous tumor was discovered. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is Dan Kosick with his inspiring story of cancer survival. Thank you so much for being willing to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So tell us about how you learned you had a cancerous tumor in your leg. That This was high school time, right? Yeah, I think it was something I had since birth. They they figured out that uh, it's probably a birth defect that I lived with for a while. Um, I remember learning how to ride a bike and getting a zinging sensation up my, and down my leg when I would hit my ankle in just the right spot. I always thought it was like an extra funny bone. Um, but when I started growing quite a bit and as the young teen, uh, the pain started hanging around a little bit longer and keeping me up at night. So eventually my parents you know, took me to the doctors to get more tests done. And all the initial testing, they couldn't really figure out anything was wrong. And then eventually we had an MRI done and discovered there was some kind of growth on my nerve. And so a biopsy was done. And that biopsy originally um, came back as everything was uh, benign and no cancer. So uh, the initial decision was to leave the tumor in uh, and just sort of deal with the discomfort because there was a potential of a lot of nerve damage if I had the tumor removed. Uh, but a year had passed. I was playing high school football and the pain was getting worse. And I decided that I wanted to have the tumor removed and possibly, you know, go through the consequences of having nerve damage. Uh, the surgery was done up here in Syracuse. We, uh, they removed the tumor and actually there was no nerve damage, but on the flip, the testing came back that there was partial malignancy to the tumor. And that's wow. when everything changed. So it re in hindsight, it's fortunate you did have it removed yes. when you did. Yep. So now you said up here in Syracuse, we should tell listeners you're from Endicott, which yes. is south of. Yes, the okay. Binghamton area. Yep. All right. Now you led sort of an active life from childhood, right? Yes. You were involved in a lot of, tell us about what um, sports you were in. As a child, I was fairly average, but highly involved in sports. My, my dad was an athlete, so it was, you know, playing peewee football, little league baseball, youth lacrosse, um, swam on the swim team, but I was not an exceptional athlete. I didn't, you know, wasn't the star captain or anything on any team. I just enjoyed playing sports. Uh, and that's what I enjoyed doing. And when this all sort of started to happen, um, I think my biggest concerns at 15 
you don't really have those deep thoughts of cancer and death. You really think about like, um, am I going to drive? Am I going to get a girlfriend? Uh, can I play sports? Can I run? Sure. You know, those are the thoughts that I was thinking. And so one of the big thoughts was, can I play sports again? And at that time, I wanted to play lacrosse again because I was in high school and that was a sport that I was enjoying. And I was a goalie before I lost my leg. So I was like, if there was any position I could come back to, I think it would be goalie after having to have my leg amputated because I wasn't going to have to get any kind of super speed up and down the field. I just had to be able to maneuver in the crease. So that was my main focus at that time. So how do you, do you remember how your parents absorbed the news? How, how did they deal with this? Oh, man. I, I think about this quite a bit because I'm a, a father now, and I honestly don't ever really remember them losing it, you know, like, and, and they were always strong around me. Uh, they were very supportive. I never um, heard any negativity. I never had them hear them say anything like they were worried about, like, it was always, if you want to do it, especially after the amputation, um, there was like learning how to ski and stuff. They were like, yeah, let's go, you know, go ahead, you can go try. As a father now, like, I don't know how they did it because I can't imagine going through that if my kids were going through that. And there was just, you know, a few times that, of course, as a family, it was tough and difficult and we had to, you know, come together. Like the day I had to have my amputation, I just remember all of us being in the hospital and getting wheeled away and just being like, this is it. I know I'm going to lose my leg. And that was an emotional day. Um, But besides that, you know, they were strong. They were they were awesome. And I couldn't ask for better parents for sure. So how soon after you had the um, tumor removed and biopsied, where, did you, was this a separate hospital no, stay? No. Um, when they discovered that the tumor had turned cancerous, they sent me to Sloan. To, um, it was a pretty rare diagnosis of a, a tumor called a Triton tumor. And Sloan Kettering is, uh, came up with the plan of how we were going to attack this. And it was pretty simple. It was we were going to ha- amputate the leg um, and prevent it from spreading and then go through about six months of chemotherapy to make sure that there was no other cells floating around. And uh, they sent that sort of back to Syracuse here. It's the university hospital. And at the time, it was the 5C unit where the, um, the children's pediatric oncology mm-hmm. unit and my doctor, Dr. Sadowitz at the time, uh, took that info and we just followed through with it. And so I had my amputation done here at University Hospital in Syracuse and I went through all my chemo up here. Um, the floor I think was in Krauss where I received all my chemo. So some people might've assumed their athletic careers would be over if they lost a leg, but you were pretty adamant that athletics was part of who you are. And it sounds like you had supportive parents mm-hmm. also. You went back to swimming lacrosse, skiing, um, things. How, how did you, how did you do all that? How did you manage it? Originally I went back to swimming because I knew it was a, a great activity to get back into shape after I finished chemo. And we had a small swim team and I was comfortable around those guys. So I asked my swim coach if I could just practice with the swim team, not even compete with them. And he let me and, um, things actually got better. My, my times actually got faster than when I had two legs because I was very aware of, who I was now and I knew a lot of eyes were on me and I just worked extra hard you know like I felt like I had something to prove so um my athletic abilities started to come out and I realized like I had potential to actually be a competitive athlete now um lacrosse I wanted to play goalie again it took a good year or more to figure out how to maneuver um on the field and with the stick and playing around and I was very competitive I was on a 18 and 2 varsity team my senior year um we were ranked in the state and in the meantime I found out about an adaptive ski program at Greek Peak down the road and went there to learn how to ski and absolutely fell in love with skiing and people there, uh, the ski racers that I call them the 10 toed freaks. Um, <laughs> they, they saw that I had a passion for skiing and they said that there was actually disabled ski racing. So then that's when I started to pursue what disabled ski racing was all about and met some coaches from the West, um, out in Colorado and they introduced that all to me. And I came up with a goal or a plan that I wanted to make the U.S. disabled ski team by the year 2002 and go to Salt Lake City Paralympics. And that was my goal for the next about seven, eight years. And it actually progressed fairly quickly. And I was able to make the team sooner than I expected and uh, compete in the 1998 Nagano Japan Paralympics also. Wow. Well, neat. That's exciting. 
did you find it difficult or did you have help um, choosing a prosthetic that would work with an active, a super active lifestyle? Yeah, I had a physical therapist who was also an amputee down near where I lived and she had a passion to really want to help me out and not just help me out, but she wanted to learn more about. So if there's others that came along that had this kind of desire to learn how to run and everything else. So she actually found a physical therapist down towards the city that was helping amputees run at that time. There wasn't really anybody in my area that could help me get to the level I wanted to. So she would actually drive me down to the city and we would go together and meet with another physical therapist. And when I was down there, I met with a prosthetist um, that was working with the amputees and he was making adjustments to legs and he was looking at my leg and there was nothing wrong with my leg, but there was things that people up here just really wouldn't understand. So eventually I decided I was gonna get my legs made down near the city in Long Island because they had just more knowledge and more experience with working with young athletic people. And I've been there now for 25 years. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dan Kosick, a childhood survivor of a cancerous bone tumor who's gone on to multiple athletic achievements. Um, now you're a longtime lacrosse coach now. You right you evolved yeah. from playing to now coaching um i had the passion of playing and uh just i stuck with it and i ended up coaching boys for a while just because i enjoyed being around the sport um never really comp- uh coached at a high level it was mostly uh, middle school or jv level uh and then eventually my daughter became old enough to start playing and uh they needed some help in the youth program so i decided to transition from boys lacrosse to girls lacrosse about five years ago to help with the youth program and girls down where i live is, uh, is that a career that you dreamed of in childhood that you wanted to grow up and become a coach? Or? No, it's it's definitely just a hobby on the side that I enjoy doing. Um, I'm a school social worker in a middle school, so it, I have the flexibility to be able to, um, you know, have that schedule of school and I can leave school at the end of the day and go help the kids after school. Well, we plan to include a link on the healthlinkonair.org website, um, but I want to ask you about the video advertisement for Merrill that's out there that's just beautiful um, video photography that was put together. It's called I Train So I Can. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people, if they Google that, I Train So I Can and Merrill, M-E-R-R-E-L-L, they should be able to find it. Um, But it was just stunning. And I wanted to talk to you about how that came about. Well, Merrill's a phenomenal company that um, wants to get people outside. And I was in obstacle course racing pretty hardcore at the time doing uh, multiple events, you know, throughout the year. And Merrill was a company that was directly involved at the time with an organization called Tough Mudder. And they were they saw my participation and supported me with some product and stuff like that for a while, while I was participating in Tough Mudder events. And I eventually called them to say thank you, but also let them know that I was sort of changing my focus last year and I wasn't gonna be competing at the same level because I was going to go climb a mountain in Ecuador with a bunch of amputees. and. I was sort of thinking that was going to be the end of our relationship. And they were like, this is amazing. This is exactly what Merrill's about is getting people outside, especially people that don't normally you would think to be outside. Um, So that's when they said, can we follow who you are and what you're doing in your training and then create some kind of video that goes along with it and hopefully have a successful climb at the end with uh, reaching a uh, 20,000 foot summit on a volcano called Cotopaxi in Ecuador. Wow. And that's where the video came from. Wow. So they were with you along the way yes. for a lot of that. Yes. What is your fitness regimen like? You were training for that specifically, but you, pro- you probably have a fitness regimen just in general, right? Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I like to spread it out. Um, I swim three days a week. I, I love swimming still. Uh, I run twice a week. I do specific obstacle course training, which focuses on like grip training and that kind of stuff at least once a week. And then strength and endurance training another two, three days a week. So some days I actually work out twice a day, um, sometimes before work and after work. And then other days, you know, it's a, a lighter sort of training day. But I feel like it's a part of who I am. And if it's not there, I, I don't feel the same. So some days it almost feels like I just need it just to wake up. Now, since you were found to have um, cancer as a teenager, you continue to be followed every year medically to, uh, by an oncologist, right? Yes. Um, do you ever, I mean, do you, how do you deal with, I don't know, the, the lingering worry or do you have worry that the cancer might come back? 
I don't really think it about it a lot. Um, I have had some injuries and now that I'm getting older um, due to my athletics and once in a while I wonder if this is related or anything to something, but uh, usually we quickly realize like this is, you know, just a typical injury that's associated with the activities I'm doing. But um, I don't really think about it too much until I come up here because uh, most of the doctors I've talked to would say if I was to get cancer again, it would probably have nothing to do with the cancer that I had in the past. Now that I'm 26 years cancer free, um, the bigger concerns that I have right now are what are the long term side effects on my heart and other parts of my body because of the chemo that I was on after um, the amputation and being so young on that chemo. But you lead, it sounds like a very healthy lifestyle to help maybe counteract some yes, of that risk. Yes, it, it helps motivate me also between having my own children that I want to be an active father with and knowing that I had this history, um, it really does help keep me going too through my activities. Do you feel like an inspiration? Because you look at that Merrill advertisement and it's so inspiring. I hear that a lot and, and, uh, and it's hard. I, it's taken a while to embrace that, but I, I have. And I like to just respond usually with saying it motivates me knowing that I'm inspiring to others. You know, I, I think a lot of people cut themselves short. I think if other people were in my shoes, they, you know, especially at 15, they would continue on and do the things that they love to do um, and not just quit. But it's, you know, you don't know it until you're there. And that's just the choice I did. And I'm, I'm glad I did it. And, I, you know, I don't think I'm superhuman in any way, for sure. <laughs> but it's nice to hear. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. My guest has been pediatric cancer survivor Dan Kosick of Endicott, New York. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the role of the child life specialist in the hospital. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If your child is hospitalized, a team of medical professionals will be involved in his or her care. Doctors and nurses, of course, but are you familiar with the child life specialist? Today, I'm going to talk about the role of this professional with Gina Lozito. She's the child life manager at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Thanks for being here, Gina. Thank you for having me. Now, the title Child Life Specialist, that sounds like a dream job for someone who likes working with children. Can you tell me what's involved in your job? I can tell you it is a dream job for um, people who like to work with children. So the basis of our job is understanding child development and how that is affected by um, being in the hospital hospital or the healthcare system. So we really have a good understanding of development and where kids are going developmentally typical, or if they have some special developmental needs, we can adjust our um, the way we teach and the way that we prepare kids um, to that level. So that's why there's a you have to have a good basis of child development. Um, and we help kids and families understand why they're in the hospital, um, what's happening to them, what they can expect, um, and what they can do to kind of cope with being there. Because it can be frightening. It is typically frightening, especially because it's an environment that most people don't understand. So are there child life specialists, I mean, throughout the Galasano Children's Hospital, the emergency room, that are they everywhere? They are pretty much everywhere. We have them in clinics. We have t- actually two in the emergency room. We have four um, in the inpatient areas. We have one in our um, cancer center clinic. We have one in our um, op- uh, our OR. We have one in radiology. Um, we have one in our well child clinic and in our outpatient OR over at 550 Harrison. So we're we're pretty well spread out. So a child coming to the hospital for just about anything is liable to encounter a child life specialist along the way. Yes, absolutely. So does a child life specialist follow a certain child or would they, I mean, is it, how is it set up? Do they? So, so we don't, 
actually foul particular children um, only if they come into the area. So if a child is coming in um, for an operation, they're going to see the child life specialist that works in the OR. If a child is admitted to a particular inpatient unit, they're going to get seen by the child life specialist that works on that unit. And the team is a very cohesive team. So if a child is going to a different area and um, a certain child life specialist works with that child, they're going to communicate to the other child life specialist. This is what helps the child. This is what works well for them. This is what mom or dad or the caregiver needs. Um, So we really work as a cohesive team. So it sounds like, is that part of the medical record too? Mm -hmm. Yep. We chart into the medical record and everything. Now, this sounds like a basic question, but why does a hospital have a department devoted to child life? Well, a long time ago, they found that kids... um, pediatric patients were having a very difficult time coping with procedures or even just being in the hospital environment itself. So as child life specialists, our job is to kind of normalize that environment. And we have found through studies um, and experience that kids who are prepared and who experience a more normalized environment cope well in the future. So think about if you're a child who's getting shots or an IV um, and you have no idea what to expect or what's happening, you tend to feel like you're being punished. And if somebody's there explaining what's happening and why they, um, the medical professionals are doing what they're doing, your coping skills go up. And um, this happens for the rest of your life. So you have um, pediatric patients who have experienced some trauma or some, some traumatic experience in the hospital, and then they're less likely to go to the doctor as adults or to get the health care that they need. Do the child life specialists, do they sort of, do they speak for the child? Are they there to sort of look out for the child's interests? In- so we are strong advocates for the child. And we also, which I think is very important, teach children and families how to advocate for themselves. So we can model um, the advocacy um, and we can also teach kids and parents um, how to properly advocate for their child or for kids for themselves. Well, having a child hospitalized, for, for a parent, that's got to be one of the top stressors. Um, so how does a child life specialist go about helping reduce that stress? So the first thing that we do is actually we can build a rapport with the child. And once a parent sees the child relax and kind of go into that normal play um, and not be as scared um, of what's happening, you definitely see the parents kind of take a deep breath and realize that everything is under control. Um and vice versa. Um, if a child is scared and have you're having a hard time connecting with the child, if you can connect with the parent and the child sees that the parent um, sees you as um, a safe person, um, the child will also relax. So it kind of works both ways, um, depending on the situation and, and the intensity of the situation. Um, but that's definitely a skill that a child life specialist needs to have is being able to build a rapport with families and kids quickly. Are there, uh, because it's got to be, it's frightening for the parents too, Mm -hmm. to have a child. Do you have advice for parents as to how to, I mean, it would be hard as a parent to mask sort of your fright from your child. Are there ways to do that though? So we call that game face. Ah. Put your game face on. Um, And some of that is the child life specialist um, talking to the parent and and explaining to them that the more um, you are showing fear and the more you're showing um, anxiety that your child feels that. Just like when they're an infant, they can feel your emotions. At any age, a child can feel they're very in tune to their caregivers and they can feel their emotions. So a lot of times, especially um, when I worked in the OR, I a lot of times had to tell parents, you know, put your game face on, you know, you can kind of lose it after the child goes back to the operating room and we have staff here to support you. Um, But right now we need you to be there, be present and support your child in the best way you can. And it's probably important to have someone there, like a child life specialist, to tell them that Mm -hmm. because it makes sense, but you wouldn't necessarily think of it. Right, exactly. And they're caught up in the situation, in the emotions that are happening to them at that time. They have a hard time like stepping out and realizing um, maybe the effect that they're having on their child. So actually having someone tell you, this is your job, This this is what I need you to do right now, has it's never not worked to parents all of a sudden 
have a realization, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what's in the best interest for my child. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Child Life Manager, Gina Lozito. I understand part of the child life specialist job is to help the child and family understand what's happening medically. So how do you accomplish that when you have potentially a wide range of developmental ages? You might have a three-year-old sibling, a 10-year-old patient, a 17-year-old sibling, and and then the parents, and you've got to address all of them. (laughs) Um, So that, like I said in the beginning, that is the basis of our job is really understanding child development. And you're going to address each child in a different way. You're going to use language different for a three-year-old than you will for a 10-year-old. And also on that same scale, you're going to also, we are constantly doing assessing and assessing situations. And you can tell when a child doesn't understand what you're saying. And you can also tell, um, we're pretty good about telling development. So I know if a 10-year-old isn't actually developmentally a 10-year-old. So I adjust what I'm saying, the the terms that I'm using, the words, the specific words that I'm using um, to their specific development so they know and understand exactly what I'm talking about. And also the hospital language is um, interesting. Um, ter- medical terminology is very interesting. And a lot of kids are very literal. So if you use terms like IV, um, a catheter that's put in your hand for fluids, um, they might think IV, my mom grows that on a vine outside uh-huh. their house. Or we're going to put you on a stretcher. Well, a stretcher stretches things. I'm tall enough. Why are you stretching me? So you have to be very um, cautious of the words that that you're using with the children. That's a good point. What sorts of things do child life specialists do to help a child who's going to be hospitalized for days or weeks in terms of making the hospital more home-like? On each pediatric unit, we have a playroom. Um, Each playroom has developmentally appropriate toys for ages 19 to zero. Um, we can't. We have special events. We have um, the Syracuse Crunch come. Um, sometimes the SU basketball players come. The football players. We have a lot of community support to keep the kids um, active and and just with things that are fun for them to do. We have a book buddy program. So that's a volunteer that comes in and actually brings a book card around and reads to the kids and allows them to pick out a a book. Um, as child life specialists. Um, we are definitely skilled in that development. So we know which games and which activities kids really like to play. We are blessed with a very, very giving community. So we have PlayStations in every room, um, flat screen TVs. Um, We're all equipped with iPads to help kids um, kind of be distracted during those intense moments. What happens if a birthday or a holiday happens while they're in the hospital? So that actually is the fun time. Um, uh, For instance, like Halloween, we do a Halloween, um, they call it a parade, but it's more like, you know, trick or treating that kids do at their own house. Mind you, we do it at 1030 in the morning, not at night. Um, But we have um, volunteers from all over the hospital that get stationed in the different all through um, the children's hospital. And we call those houses. And all the kids go through the two floors of the children's hospital and kind of trick or treat. And I can guarantee they get twice as much um, toys, little gifts, candy, anything um, that they could ever possibly want um, than they would at home. Neat. Well, do you find that doctors and nurses and other medical professionals have a respect for the child life specialist? Absolutely. We do a lot of education about our role and how we are here to help them. If a kid and or caregiver are coping really well, um, that actually makes their job easier. If a physician or a nurse has to do a procedure and we can distract the kids or um, talk a kid through the procedure so they're able to hold still and cooperate, um, that absolutely makes the nurse and the doctor's job a lot easier. So we definitely work as a cohesive team. How does someone who's interested in this career path get started? How do you become a child life specialist? So it is an actual bachelor's degree in a child as a child life as your um, major. Um, our local colleges, Syracuse University and um, Utica College in Utica, both have the child life major. There are colleges across the United States. Um, 
you have to get a bachelor's degree in child life and then you have to do a 600 hour internship. Um, It's one full semester, usually your last semester in college. And then um, there's a certification exam required. Okay. And then you, uh, hospitals are the main place where they would be employed? Yeah, hospitals or um, healthcare clinics. Some pediatrician's office have them um, if they're going to do minor procedures or immunizations and stuff like that. Some um, across the United States, there are some dental um, offices Mm. that have them. Well, what type of person do you think makes the best child life specialist? Like what sort of personality traits would so, you be looking for? <laughs> so you definitely want someone who can work well with children and adults. So um, it's it's definitely a misconception that you only have to be able to work with children. But if you think about it, children come with adults attached to them. Sure. Um, so you have to be able to to do both. So you have to be a you know kind of a caring and um, easygoing, very flexible. Our day is never the same day twice. If you um, go into work expecting that you're going to have an X, Y, and Z day, you are definitely not. Um, anything that you are prepared for, things are just going to get thrown in and you have you have to be able to kind of roll with it um the healthcare field is not uh you know a typical nine to five uh desk job um so you and you definitely have to um have fun you have to know how to play you have to know how to be funny and have kids kind of warm up to you quickly does it help to have kids of your own at home? Um, well, I don't have kids, and I've been doing this for 19 years, so I don't think that's necessary. We actually have quite a few um, people on our team that don't have children. Um, just because you have children does not mean that you actually are really good at working with them. Um, but, you know, knowing kids and in, in development is very helpful. And what about like the medical side of it? Do you do child life specialists learn, I don't know, anatomy and oh, things yeah. like that? So in a lot of the um, requirements for college, um, we have to take anatomy and physiology, um, medical terminology. So you have to understand the medical piece so you can um, tie the developmental piece to it. So you know what the terminology is and then how to change it so a, so a child would understand. Wow. Well, lots of good information. Thank Thank you you so much for stopping by. My guest has been Gina Lizito, a child life manager at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. People in healthcare work long hours, and sometimes they may wonder if they really make a difference in patients' lives. Pediatrician Peter Cronkite can answer this question both personally and professionally. In his brief but elegant essay, Meaningful Use, he takes on the often frustrating metrics that healthcare systems now force all practitioners to use, while showing us he remembers from his own past just how important and meaningful old-fashioned notions of listening and caring for a patient are. Here is Meaningful Use. Diary entry, January 16, 2016. I run from a morning meeting about the finances of meaningful use and enter the cramped exam room where ZM waits with her three children, two in diapers and one in a video game. She presents as an ER follow-up for back pain. The pain is no better. Taught that it is best to reveal all patient concerns early, I repeatedly inquire, and anything else? She lists, dizzy, tired, Headache from their noise. I yell at them. It makes me cry. I size them up. The toddler, a girl, points a shaking index finger at me and scowls. The oldest, a boy age four, is spread across the footrest of my exam table, ignoring me while thumbing at the beeping screen. The infant, new to our world four months ago, stretches across mom's lap. Limbs spread in apparent rigor mortis from his snowsuit. I wonder if his fat cheeks are natural 
or mobilized facial edema from compressed extremities. I take him while mom trades places with video boy. The girl is soon standing on the chair's armrest, pulling otoscope speculums from the wall. A quick fix will not be the care plan for the start of my Friday schedule. But the scene flashes me back to another case. After being corralled in a packed waiting room, N.C. and three of her six boys are escorted into an exam room. The urgent visit for the boys in diapers was prompted by a referral from N.C.'s three sisters. N.C. always consulted my aunts before calling the doctor. As the boys explore every cupboard in the tiny exam room, the thin walls provide a soundtrack of the doctor's journey to their door. He finally enters, calmly greets N.C., while picking up the boy pushing his rolling stool and sits down. As he listens repeatedly to N.C. over the years, the boys grow up receiving care that fosters dignity and learn the value of a positive role model. I play my role. I measure mom's BP standing while the snowsuit pins her infant safely from rolling off the exam table. Mom's suffering is acknowledged. I offer empathetic reassurance while retrieving the escaping toddler from the hallway. The child points a shaking finger at me and scowls. I offer my hand and she holds on. Together we walk. Before closing the charted encounter that evening, the red vital alerts me to always address an abnormal BMI. I click, click, click to 36.2, click, click to the option of lifestyle education regarding diet, and click, click, click to save and close. Meaningful use is difficult to measure, but I know it because I have experienced it repeatedly. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with the physician scientist who's working on a heroin vaccine. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.